we're going to start the show off a little differently because there's so much pop culture in the news and we have questions. Like, how long before the Broadway play Take Me Out sells out? Because I need to get a ticket. The play features a scene where Grey's Anatomy actor Jesse Williams is fully nude. And last night, a video from that scene was unleashed on the internet. The audience wasn't supposed to have phones, but someone snuck one in and snapped a picture of Williams. And now everyone is a fan of the theater. And it's public opinion finally shifting in the Amber Heard-Johnny Depp defamation case. Heard took the stand last week to share her perspective on their tumultuous relationship. She detailed some pretty disturbing instances where Depp allegedly abused her, including a forced cavity search for drugs. A decision isn't expected in this case until the end of the month, but her testimony does seem to have changed at least the conversation about the trial as more people are taking her abuse allegations seriously. And staying with the courts, when did everyone on Twitter become a lawyer? Young Thug, along with his protege Gunna and 26 other members of their crew, were indicted in Georgia for alleged gang activity. And the armchair attorney takes on Twitter are rolling in. There are 56 counts against the group that goes by YSL. It's a RICO case, which means prosecutors are coming after them for being an organized crime group. I learned that from the attorneys of Twitter. But this does have the potential to be a big case. So we're gonna keep an eye on this to find out what might be in store for Thugger and his crew of alleged bandits. For the next question, I had to call an expert because for more than a week now, the internet has been obsessed with Kim Kardashian and Marilyn Monroe's dress. Kardashian wore the dress to the Met Gala. It's the dress that Marilyn Monroe famously sang happy birthday to President Kennedy in. And people are pissed. So why is this such a big deal? And why might it have been irresponsible for Kim to wear the dress? Kimberly Chrisman Campbell is a fashion historian and author of the upcoming book, Skirts, Fashioning Modern Femininity in the 20th Century. First thing I asked her, what exactly is a fashion historian? Fashion historians are usually art historians, but sometimes social historians or anthropologists or makers who specialize in studying dress and textiles, as well as things that go along with those like beauty or the body. Campbell told me that there is some precedent for celebrities wearing vintage gowns on the red carpet. Stars like Reese Witherspoon, Julia Roberts, Renee Zellweger, and Winona Ryder have worn stunning vintage gowns to the Oscars. But none of them have worn a vintage dress as historically significant as Marilyn Monroe's. That's because pieces like that are usually owned by museums who would almost never loan out a dress to be worn. But Marilyn Monroe's dress is owned by Ripley's and they're an entertainment company. Ripley's paid $4.81 million for the gown in 2016 and clearly thought that the PR benefits of allowing Kardashian to wear it at such a high-profile event outweighed the risks to their investment. It's unprecedented to see something as rare, fragile, iconic, and historically significant as that particular Marilyn Monroe gown on the red carpet. It sets a really bad precedent on a number of levels as well as putting a lot of unnecessary strain on the object itself. Because the dress was custom made for Monroe and couldn't be altered, Kardashian had to go on a crash diet to fit into it. She had to walk up all those steps at the museum in seven inch platform heels because it was too long, which increased the risk to the gown. And she only wore it for 10 minutes on the red carpet before changing into a replica that fit her better. 
We could have a lively debate over what makes a piece of clothing so historically important that it shouldn't ever be worn again. Unfortunately, in practice, the person who decides whether something is worth preserving is its owner, whether that's a museum, a private individual, or a for-profit entity like Ripley's. So that means we may still see more historic garments on the red carpet in the future. And now a question about a story we covered a few months ago. About a week ago, the U.S. government classified WNBA superstar Brittany Griner as wrongfully detained. Griner was arrested earlier this year in Russia, where she also plays for a basketball team there. She was charged with allegedly bringing marijuana vape oil into the country and has been in Russian custody ever since. I wanted to know what classifying her as wrongfully detained means and what it could mean for her prospects of coming home. So I called up insider reporter Meredith Cash. We talked to her for our earlier episode on Griner. This is a shift that experts told me is pretty rare. It's not common that the government gets involved in the legal process in other countries when it comes to its citizens unless they feel the case is not straightforward, essentially. When it comes to Griner, a quote I got from an expert said that the move is a strong signal that the U.S. government does not believe that there is a legitimate case against her. The fact that they've made this move to designate her as wrongfully detained indicates that they're not waiting for her case to move through the Russian legal system. They're now going to move ahead and try to negotiate for her release before there's any ruling on her case. This is a positive sign for Griner, but what the timeline is, I don't know if anyone could tell you. And the last question on our minds this week, what the hell is going on at Netflix? The streaming giant's stock is dramatically down. They're abandoning projects they started just six months ago. They've laid off some of their prominent employees. They say they're going to crack down on password sharing. And for the first time in a decade, they're losing subscribers. Netflix has been synonymous with streaming for years. But now, it looks like Netflix is in danger of losing the streaming wars. Welcome to Pop Culture. I'm Bridget Armstrong. Today, a conversation about the decline of Netflix and where they fit in now that they have a lot more competitors. We want to focus on the business of Netflix and its competitors, so we called up two experts to help. Dawn Chmielewski is an entertainment business correspondent for Reuters. Ronnie Mola is a senior data reporter for Recode. She hosted a podcast about Netflix that I was one of the producers for a few years ago. You'll hear from Dawn and Ronnie throughout this episode. For a long time, Netflix was the king of streaming. Even at the start of the pandemic, they had a boost in subscribers and they still had viral shows like Tiger King. Now fast forward to 2022 and Netflix has lost subscribers in the United States. Their stock is down. They've had layoffs. And there's just this general overall sense that Netflix has fallen off. My name is Dawn Shimaleski. I'm a U.S.-based entertainment business correspondent for Reuters. And I've just written a book about Hollywood's so-called streaming wars called Binge Times. I started the interview by asking Dawn the question at hand. What the heck is going on at Netflix? There's no question that 
there's been a pretty abrupt sea change. They were soaring, especially during the pandemic. Netflix saw record subscriber gains. We were all sort of trapped at home and looking for some escape from the gloom, and Netflix seemed to be a great way to escape. But fast forward to January of this year, it became apparent that Netflix's growth was starting to slow. And Netflix has been trying to find a way to explain it. Maybe some of the subscribers who had intended to subscribe did subscribe during the pandemic, and so that, so that its growth would naturally slow. Well, now it appears that there are other factors at play. All of a sudden, Netflix, which we could argue created this notion of binging and streaming in our homes, and it really has a decade-long lead, suddenly has competition and a lot of competition. Not only does it have Amazon, which has been offering streaming in the home for as long as Netflix has, actually, but now it has newcomers like Disney Plus and it has HBO Max. Its growth is slowing in the face of this competition. So Netflix is confronted with a challenge unlike anything that it's had across its history. And put this in context, like, what are we talking about for Netflix? Are their stock prices down? Are they in danger of closing next year? Like, what, what are we talking about here? <laughs> I mean, look, uh, the, you know, almost for the entire history of Netflix, people have predicted Netflix's death. There was a time back in its earliest days when it was confronting Blockbuster, people predicted it would never survive, that it had this well-resourced competitor. So, you know, obviously... Blockbuster ultimately was the one that failed and not Netflix and Netflix grew to be kind of a, a household name. Netflix has had other challenges like the Quickster debacle. The last time Netflix lost subscribers was when they tried to launch Quickster back in 2011. Quickster was supposed to be this separate DVD by mail service. Here's how Ronnie explained it. So they made like their streaming service different than their DVD by mail service and they wanted to charge people more. So they're used to be getting the streaming service for free and they raised their prices. So like it was just like, you know, a sandwich. <laughs> like, As Ronnie just eloquently put it, the Quickster launch was a disaster and it almost tanked Netflix. They lost something like a million subscribers in a really short period of time. And so eventually they abandoned the Quickster plan. But Netflix learned a valuable and very expensive lesson. Once people get used to something, they really don't like change. But it's unclear if that lesson will help them now. Dawn again. This period feels different, right? Its stock price is off. It's lost like two-thirds of its market value over the last six months. And it's been a decade since it reported a loss of subscribers. So this moment is, I mean, it's, a, it's really at a critical juncture in its history. And we're beginning to see Netflix react. So there have been stories in other outlets talking about how Netflix is looking to be a bit more frugal. And you know and I know that when you turn on Netflix, you're sort of awash in choices. They produce something like 500 pieces of content a year. It attempts to be something to everyone. And so Netflix is going to be more selective about its projects and a little bit more careful about its spending. As you started our conversation, Netflix has laid off a few people in its marketing division. And it's making some other changes so that it can be a much more efficient operation. And at the same time, Netflix is trying to increase revenue by raising prices in mature markets like the United States and in Canada, where it may well have reached the upper reaches of the number of subscribers it will gain. And so it's now had to cover the enormous cost of content, which is close to $20 billion this year they're expecting to spend, by increasing prices in markets like the U.S. 
Another thing they've done, they're cracking down on password sharing, right? Like, notoriously, you have you, your mama, your cousin, your cousin's mama, everybody on the account. And so they're really just getting that one-time fee. And so they've said that they're going to crack down on that. And a lot of that stuff really isn't going over well with subscribers. It's not going over well on Twitter. And so while it may be a way to generate money to save money, I wonder if you think it's a smart move, given how people are reacting. It's a really interesting move, right? Like Netflix not only was aware that people shared passwords, they were online encouraging people to share their Netflix passwords. But again, there's this this sort of new reality that's dawning that maybe they've reached the kind of upper limits of their growth. And the only way they can continue to grow revenue is to now try to derive some subscription revenue from the people who obviously enjoy its programming, right? They've been watching Queen's Gambit or, you know, or Squid Game or whatever else. So now Netflix is going to try to get a little extra money for people like me who share my password with other family members who are not in my home. So the question remains, they've just come off of a price increase, and now they're talking about increasing the prices more for me to continue to offer Netflix to a kid of mine who's living in Orlando or my, my son who's living not so far away. So I don't know how subscribers will react. We'll see. And it's not just subscribers who are ticked off with Netflix. The company just went through a round of layoffs that don't look great for them. Back in December, they launched a fan site called Tudum. You know, Tudum, like the sound that plays when you open Netflix. Okay, so they hired a new staff for this site, and a lot of them were women of color. A few weeks ago, Netflix laid them all off, and some of them said with little notice and little severance. Netflix has always had a unique workplace culture that could be a bit unsentimental. But these recent layoffs may mean some things about the culture and how they treat their employees are changing. Ronnie again. Netflix's whole thing is that like they pay a lot of money, you get excellent benefits, but they're also super cutthroat and they'll get rid of you like for nothing. So we know that it's cutthroat, but we also know that like the flip side of that is like you're supposed to make a lot of money. It sounds like these people, you know, are saying they're not getting a really good severance. They're not getting paid what they should. I don't know their particular situations. Maybe they're contract workers. That might be what it is. But, you know, that doesn't matter to, like, the outside world. Like, it just sounds like Netflix isn't paying their workers. And it also tricked them to come there, you know, said, hey, we'll give you a lot of money. Hey, leave your other job. Hey, we want a lot of women, people of color working here. And then you fire them. That that feels awful. Employing what they see as the best talent at all costs It's one of the things that made Netflix a leader in streaming for such a long time. Another reason Netflix had a big head start over all of its competitors, the tech. The app is fast, there aren't a lot of glitches, and it's easy to navigate. And it's been like that for some time now. And the tech that fuels Netflix is really solid, too. They invested a lot of money into their server system so that pretty much anywhere you go with the Internet and Netflix service, You'll have the same watch quality, the same sort of viewing experience without any interruptions. And these features, they were a big deal for a while, but not so much anymore. Netflix just worked. It worked really well. It was sort of seamless. It was intuitive. But now, like, that's just table stakes. You know, every other company can make, like, a pretty reasonable streaming service. Although I'd argue that, like, some of them are still pretty annoying. Like, if you've ever used the Hulu one. Very annoying. (laughs) The other big thing that gave Netflix competitive advantage, the programming. Dawn mentioned this earlier, but Netflix for a long time wanted to be all things for all people. It tries to have something for everyone. 
And in the early days, that included a lot of shows and movies that were from other studios. You could say like the raison d'etre for watching Netflix was that you could binge all of The Office. I mean, it was for me for a little while. And then Peacock now took The Office, you know, NBC took The Office for themselves. Like a lot of the things that we used to watch on Netflix are now on their own streaming services. So Netflix lost a lot of that content. Also, you know, Netflix makes a lot of its own stuff, but they're now competing with these other companies to, you know, over the good stuff, whether they get to make the good thing or whether they get to make like just the meh thing, I'll watch it, you know, whatever. (laughs) Before Netflix became a mostly streaming service, they sent DVDs by mail. And during that time, they established relationships with the studios. So when they got into streaming, they struck up these deals with Disney, Sony, Paramount, and a lot of the other big names to allow them to put their programming on the platform. Remember when Netflix had Marvel movies? Donegan. Studio executives at the time were thinking, wow, these guys are suckers. They're paying us so much money for our films. You know, how can we not do these deals? Because these deals make these publicly traded companies look great. There was an awakening back in around 2015 when Disney's then CEO, Bob Iger, had to acknowledge to investors that a key part of the revenue for the industry, you know, the pay TV, was starting to slow and people were starting to uh, cord and uh, rely increasingly on streaming as a way to get their entertainment. And ESPN, which had long been a cash cow for Disney, had su- was suddenly losing millions of subscribers, which was a wake-up call for him and for the Walt Disney Company. And it, it began this sort of rethinking how to think about streaming, not merely as uh, another distribution channel, but perhaps an opportunity for these media companies to seize upon. And in 2017, Disney said, hey, we're taking all our content off of Netflix. It didn't come off immediately, but it would be uh, the basis for the launch of its very successful Disney Plus streaming service. And the rest of Hollywood sort of followed suit. So all the other services began announcing plans to launch a streaming service. So it was a significant pivot. Many of these services launched right in the middle of COVID, so they didn't exactly get off to a rousing start. Like HBO Max launched without some of its marquee uh, shows, like there was this planned Friends reunion that just couldn't happen because the filming would have happened right in the middle of COVID. But they've all slowly gathered steam. And they've gathered steam by doing unusual things like Warner Brothers decided to release all of its new movies on HBO Max on the same day that they were available in theaters. And it made Hollywood talent furious because they frankly had no no idea that this was coming, but it did help accelerate the growth of that service. Netflix knew that it was going to lose some of its popular programming to other studios. So they invested in original content. 2013's House of Cards was one of their first viral shows. And they've had a lot of standouts since then, like Orange is the New Black, Stranger Things, Black Mirror, Squid Game, and a lot of others. But with more streaming services in the race, Netflix has more competition when it comes to bidding on that original programming. And some subscribers say they've noticed a slip in quality on the platform. This whole conversation we're having is about the fact that Netflix is doing so badly right now. But how do we reconcile that with the fact that they just had an award suite with Power of the Dog? The movie's director, Jane Campion, just won an Oscar. I asked Don what that means for Netflix and if the win could help turn things around for the platform. There's a value in winning awards beyond the prestige of being recognized as as being sort of the best in the field for, for that year. And Jane Campion, for her directing Power of the Dog, was that person. You know, and that 
that helps Netflix when it comes to recruiting talent. So the fact that these top flight filmmakers could consider coming to Netflix, if you're a top director, you have many choices of which studio to go to. And so Netflix is saying, hey, look, not only can you make the sort of movie you want with very few notes, but we'll actively support you with really aggressive spending for an awards campaign. So for Netflix, it's been a bit of prestige. It has been the ability to recruit top talent to the platform. And that has historically paid off in terms of subscribers. Like if the only way that you can watch an Oscar-nominated film like last year's Mank or the year before that, The Irishman, the only way you could see those predominantly was on Netflix. That was a big tool for attracting subscribers. And we will see what happens going forward because Netflix has spent millions of dollars promoting these films. And it remains to be seen whether that's translating to subscriber growth or if it's simply like self-aggrandizement that, you know, Netflix can go out and say, hey, we had a best picture. So we'll see. I, you know, I feel like everything uh, at Netflix is up for reevaluation right now. And at the same time, some of the other streaming services are also winning awards like Apple TV, for example, they won the best picture Oscar for CODA. They also won a bunch of like Emmys and other awards for their show, Ted Lasso. So what does that tell us about the way that the Academy and some of these other award shows are starting to think about the programming that comes from streaming? It definitely is a big sea change for the industry. And I think we can thank COVID for a new way of thinking about what films are Oscar worthy. You remember back in 2020, so many of the theaters were closed and the Academy of Arts and Sciences changed its criteria for films that were eligible. Before, uh, films were required to have a qualifying run. They needed to appear at theaters in LA for a period of time prior to being available on streaming services for them to be considered. But the industry and and some of its uh, best-known directors like Steven Spielberg were disdainful of these films. They called them sort of TV movies. Well, that all changed when no one could release a movie into theaters. The Academy relaxed some of its qualifying standards and suddenly new films came into consideration. And we saw for the first time a film that debuted on a streaming service, Coda, this really heartwarming story about a a hearing young woman who is born into a family of uh, of deaf parents with a deaf brother. This film, which was really uplifting, won Best Picture. And it was a a milestone moment. It also kind of signaled sea change within the industry that it could recognize merit regardless of what screen the movie has premiered on. In a lot of ways, Netflix helped change the television game by refusing to play by the old rules. Netflix has never been valued the same way that other traditional television companies and studios have. It has a lot to do with Netflix originally being seen as a media company, not a studio. But for this conversation, all you need to know is Netflix isn't really held to the same standards as some of their more traditional competitors. Like, they were in a lot of debt, but still investing a lot into original programming because they didn't have to show that they were actually making money. The other thing they didn't really have to worry about was proving their success through ratings. Well, it definitely is a source of frustration. I mean, Netflix does now share some data with the people who create movies or or series for the service. 
So there is a little bit of feedback, but you're right. It's not the same sort of third-party rating service, the rules that everyone else plays by. And this has long been a, a giant frustration. And ditto for movies. All of the movie studios have an opening weekend and the success or failure of their, their projects are, are evaluated based on, on box office. And Netflix hasn't had to play that game. Even when it releases its movies to theaters for a limited run so that they can qualify for Oscars, it doesn't report box office data. So the only one who's grading Netflix is Netflix. And the primary metric is using is, does this drive engagement? Does this cause people to subscribe to our service or does it not? And that's how it makes decisions about whether shows are renewed. Did the amount of money we spent to make this series, was that justified by the number of people who ultimately watched the show? And they've had some home runs like Squid Game, for instance, was an example of their strategy of really going beyond Hollywood to tell stories from around the world and stories that can resonate in, in local languages. And the benefit of that is not only we get to, to sort of open the cultural lens, but Netflix gets, has the advantage of working in a, a market like Korea, where the production costs are held a lot lower. So, so they had this global hit and it didn't cost anywhere near what Netflix pays for The Crown, for instance. And you hinted at something with Squid Game and Netflix's push for international content, right? And I was recently out of the country um, and it occurred to me for all of our conversation about how Netflix is losing the streaming wars here in the U.S., right? Netflix is like the only thing you can watch um, compared to some of the other streaming services when you're in other countries. And I was in Europe and West Africa. And in both of those cases, without a VPN, I couldn't watch HBO Max. I couldn't watch Hulu. Internationally, how does this conversation change when we're talking about Netflix and some of its other streaming competitors? Netflix recognizes that the U.S. is a mature market. If it continues to grow, it's going to be by increments. But the big opportunity is in markets like Asia, where uh, even, even as it lost in total for its most recent quarter, a lot of them were, like 700,000 of them were in Russia, where it suspended services because of the Ukraine war and Netflix's decision to, to withdraw its service from the country. But it saw growth throughout Asia. And, and that's why you're beginning to see so much of its investment in markets like Japan or in India or in Korea. It sees uh, not only does it see like new stories, but it also sees a vast untapped market. Now, it's, it's not without challenges. A market like India, pay TV services cost three bucks a month. So it's really hard for Netflix to make high quality content in a variety of languages to, to reach an audience that, that's in, in India, you know, more than a billion people who speak a variety of different languages, you know, but to do so in a way that's really inexpensive. So Netflix is trying to solve that problem. And if it can, you know, if it can build a service that's popular there and where it's able to compete successfully against Disney, which has a uh, hot star and has cricket, which has been enormously popular. It's, it's quite a, quite a popular service in India and Amazon, which is also in market they have the potential to continue growing. And Reed Hastings' theory that the total number of people who ultimately could subscribe to Netflix is far greater than, say, the cable services who are limited by you know, hardware in the US, that you know, potentially it's maybe a billion people. And if he, he'll point to Facebook, which has you know, in excess of 2 billion users or other, uh, these other global services that, that are able to reach enormous scale just because of the, the by dint of technology. So Reed sees that as the potential market for Netflix. Maybe this is a hiccup and maybe the, you know, the focus on locally produced local language content will help get him there because he's certainly seen that Spanish stories or German stories or you know, stories in Korean do travel. I mean, if it's authentic, we'll be drawn to human stories no matter where the story originates. So we'll see. That's his bet. I want to just 
just talk a little bit about the way that some of these companies are handling controversial social issues. We know a few months ago there were protests directed at Netflix, and some of them involved Netflix employees. People were protesting a recent Dave Chappelle comedy special in which he said things that were perceived to be um, anti-LGBTQ and disparaging to trans people. And then, of course, with Disney, not Disney Plus, but the, the larger parent company, Disney, they're involved in this controversy in Florida with the Don't Say Gay bill. They've had pressure on both sides and pressure from their employees to speak out against that bill. And a lot of these companies, Netflix in particular, have been a little reluctant to comment on some of these more serious controversial issues. But it kind of seems like they can't do that anymore. Like people are looking, looking to them to have an increased responsibility. So what's your take on that? And how do we think these companies are going to respond to these kinds of issues going forward? Because I don't think they can stay on the sidelines anymore. Yeah, I mean, I think we're seeing increasingly that corporations have become the targets of both the right and the left, right? A company like Disney or a company like Netflix are so well known that they, they make for ripe targets to talk about these social issues. And Netflix really struggled to find the right way to respond to criticisms of Dave Chappelle's comedy. The members of the LGBT community who were within Netflix were raising concerns about it, and they felt that they hadn't been heard, and some prominent engineers simply quit in protest. And Netflix has maintained that it's an example of speech and that they have examples of other shows that represent a different perspective so that they're trying to program broadly and they're trying to avoid being drawn into the culture wars. Disney has seemed less sure-footed in handling this issue. In Florida, as you mentioned, Disney has something like 70,000 employees working at Walt Disney World at its parks and resorts in Orlando. And Disney tried to work behind the scenes as a state formulated legislation that would prevent instruction about sexual orientation or, or gender identity in the classroom. Disney tried not to get involved in that, and its employees saw that as a massive betrayal. And Bob Chapek, to his credit, acknowledged he'd failed his own people and then took a stand when Governor DeSantis signed the legislation into law. And he said, we're hoping that this, this law will be repealed. It will promote intolerance and in retaliation. Ron DeSantis signed legislation that takes away Disney's ability to self-govern in Orlando to maintain this huge theme park that attracts like 58 million people a year. So will Netflix get blockbustered by one of its many competitors? Dawn thinks it's too early to tell. But with the challenges Netflix is facing and the recent cancellation of CNN+, this is a watershed moment for all of the streamers. I think we we'll probably will see all of the media companies sort of recalibrate. They've all spent billions of dollars to build up these streaming services. And maybe we go through a period of reset where the media companies say, hey, look, you know, we have TV businesses that are still pretty lucrative and we still release movies. So these media companies may well reassess how they value streaming and where it fits within the corporation. Is it the sole focus of the corporation or is it just one distribution channel among many? I think what the streaming industry will need to grapple with is this factor of churning. So consumers, particularly consumers like Gen X and millennials, just can't afford it, right? So they will subscribe to a service for a month to watch that one show that everybody's talking about and then cancel. And third-party data sources like Deloitte have said, look, there's an over 30% churn. People 
subscribing and you know canceling their services, that is really costly for the industry. So perhaps we will come to a point where these services will rebundle. So for example, the newly merged Warner Brothers and Discovery will now combine Discovery streaming services with HBO Max, much like Disney has combined its Hulu service with its ESPN Plus service with its Disney Plus service to create a more expanded offering for consumers at a price that's slightly discounted. So I think we'll see that. And I think the last development that we'll see that Netflix actually indicated it would do in its earnings call is we're going to see a, a bunch of less expensive services that feature that one element of TV viewing that we all thought was dead advertising. It turns out it makes for a less expensive product. And I think consumers have already indicated with services that are free or discounted with ads. Consumers like actually paying less and will tolerate ads if it means a less expensive service. So I think we will see more of that in the future. Ronnie again. I, I guess like the argument has always been that like, you know, it's 15 bucks a month. People could afford a few of these services, um, especially if they've gotten rid of their $100 a month cable bill. It's really going to depend on what has the things that people want to watch on it. Netflix certainly has a lot of stuff and it has a lot of good stuff, but there's also like a lot of crap. Does it have enough shows that are like, I need to have Netflix in order to have this service? Or is HBO going to be that one? Or is Disney going to be that one? I do think it's not an all or nothing. You know, I get Netflix or I get this, but you probably just get like two or three services and then steal passwords for the rest. I asked Don if she had to pick one streaming service to watch that might be the next Netflix if Netflix falls off, which would it be? I think what will be interesting to watch is uh, Apple. Apple is this trillion-dollar technology company that certainly has a lot of resources to throw at any project it chooses to explore, like building cars. <laughs> and its Apple TV Plus streaming service, when it launched, launched with what looked like pretty paltry offerings, you know, a handful of movies and series. And everyone in Hollywood was sort of scratching their heads, like, how can you hope to coax subscribers to a service. And you know, Apple's strategy has been to create sort of a new version of HBO with high-end content, sort of bespoke content that reflects the Apple brand. And they were super sensitive about things like smoking, for instance, or the, you know, depictions of religion. They didn't want to alienate consumers and potentially do harm to this very valuable brand that sells these very expensive devices. But I have to say in the years since the service launched in November of 2019, we can look back and see that it won the Best Picture Oscar in its uh, in its series. Ted Lasso won the Emmy for Best Comedy, and it won several awards for the various actors and act actresses uh, in the show. So it has it is proving that its strategy is finding some resonance. And so, I think Apple is perhaps one of the surprising players in the streaming wars. This counter strategy of just picking a handful of projects that it feels will stand out in the crowd. It seems like that is paying dividends for Apple. And that's it for us today. I'm Bridget Armstrong, senior producer and host of the show. And I work with an extremely hardworking and patient team to make it every week. Alicia Key is the show's producer. Andrew Calloway is our senior engineer. Graylin Brashear is the senior director of audio at The Skim. Big thanks to all the wonderful people we had on the show today. Kimberly Christman Campbell, Meredith Cash, Don Chimaleski, and Ronnie Mola. We'll have links to their work in the show notes. We'll be back next week with an all new episode. And in the meantime, be sure to rate, subscribe, and tell a friend.